our top story. Canada's first victim of sexual assault to be prosecuted for violating the publication ban on her own name is now appealing that conviction, even though she actually pleaded guilty to it. Let me bring you up to speed on this story. This is from the Waterloo area. It was first broken by the Waterloo record. It is a woman who there was a a, a case where there was a, a sexual assault ruling, and the ruling itself was covered by a publication ban. The ruling was given orally by a judge. This sometimes happens in sexual assault cases. And there was a publication ban, though the publication ban was on there. You know, the Canadian courts hand this out, you know, like candy at Halloween. They just, it's just a regular thing. But so the publication ban is supposed to be there to protect the identity of the sexual assault victim. Now, she gets a copy of the actual ruling and then shares that, I believe, in an email. You might have to correct me on that, but she shares it somehow electronically with friends, with her quote unquote support group. Remember, this is the victim of a sexual assault. And somehow the information then gets out, and the the person who assaulted her then says, well, wait a second, this has violated a publication ban. And the sexual assault victim is charged, pleads guilty, and is fined by the court system. Emily Tman is the co-host of the podcast, The Docket, a very influential legal podcast, and joins me on the line. Emily, welcome. Did I sum that up correctly? Did I get the basics of that case? I think you did pretty much. Maybe if I could offer one quick point of clarification, though. Um, The publication ban only covered information that would tend to disclose the identity of the complainant. It wasn't a publication ban on the ruling itself. So, for example, if she had simply redacted names in the transcript that she shared, that would not have been a breach of the uh, publication ban. But, of course, the people with whom she shared it were already aware of her identity. So the purpose behind the publication ban, while it might have been a really technical breach, um, the purpose is to protect the identity of the complainant, and the complainant's identity was already known. Uh, Emily, put this in some perspective for me. This just seems just outrageous. It really is. I mean, I think one of the, the truly aggravating features as well is, as you noted, the complainant, the person who went to the police and complained that there had been a breach of the publication ban was the offender, was the person who had sexually assaulted this woman. And I think he felt within his rights to do so because in order to protect her name, his name was also protected by the publication ban because they had been married. And so if his name were known and it was disclosed that he had sexually assaulted his spouse, that would have disclosed her identity. But the publication ban was not there for him. So he felt aggrieved because now his name had been shared, but he wasn't entitled to feel that um, anger. And I just think it's so unfortunate that so many justice system participants allowed themselves to become implicated in his ongoing abuse of this woman. Because this this doesn't end just with his complaint. This goes through an actual prosecution, and the, the, the woman actually pleads guilty to this. Bring me up to speed now. She's actually trying to overturn 
this even though she pled guilty, pleaded guilty? That's right. That's right. So some some very, um, very competent and well-respected uh, appellate counsels, Robin Parker and Karen Symes, managed to find and reach out to this woman. And, you know, it's important for your listeners to understand that there are all kinds of reasons that people plead guilty when it may not be ultimately in their best interest. This is a woman who had been through the ordeal of a sexual assault trial. She was also involved and is still involved, as I understand it, in incredibly acrimonious family law proceedings. And I can't really blame her for not wanting to go through the further indignity of a trial like this. And so it may well be that she instructed her lawyer that she wanted to plead guilty, which was within her rights. But I think if she had had some really strong advocacy on her side, um, a, a lawyer should have been able to persuade the Crown to drop the charges. And if, if the Crown wasn't prepared to do that, then I think that's to his extreme discredit as well, because prosecutions are only supposed to go forward when the Crown is satisfied first that they have a reasonable prospect of conviction, but secondly, that the prosecution is in the public interest. And I just don't see how the weighing of all the relevant factors in this case could have led to the conclusion that a prosecution would be in the public interest, given the likely chilling effect this will have um, on sexual assault complainants who already have a host of reasons why they're reticent to come forward. I'm speaking with Emily Tamant, who is the co-host of the podcast, The Docket, and an Ottawa area lawyer. Uh, let's deal with two issues here. Start with how the legal system treats uh, sexual assault survivors, and then let's move on to publication bans. Let's let's begin with kind of a higher level, what this says about how the system treats those who are the victims of sexual abuse. I mean, I think most people who found themselves in that situation will tell you that it's an incredibly taxing and harrowing experience that is re-victimizing in a lot of ways. Having to stand up publicly and confront your abuser, um, having to go through the indignity of the unfortunately necessary rigorous cross-examination at the hands of the accused counsel. Um, and I think oftentimes, uh, despite policy efforts to remedy this, feeling quite excluded from the process. Because I think what a lot of people don't fully appreciate is that in a criminal trial, the Crown does not represent the victim. The Crown represents the state. And it is a proceeding that is, you know, goes to the question of whether a person should have their liberty taken away uh, and whether the Crown has proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So the Crown isn't really there as, a, as an advocate for the victim. And so I know there are efforts underway to try to secure better um, access to legal counsel for survivors, but there's just no question that from the date of the complaint to being questioned by police to the lead up to a trial and participation in a trial, it is an incredibly emotionally draining experience. Um, and so I think, it, you know, and, and often it doesn't even get to that point because either you're not believed or it's found that there's insufficient evidence, there's no prospect of conviction. So it's, I think, you know, a lot of these people are just disappointed at every turn. And it and it compounds their trauma. Let's move then to um, publication bans, and and perhaps I have uh, somewhat of a bias on this because as a member of a media media, most often publications bans are are put in place, you know, to have uh, to, to say that okay, I, I as a member of the media, this is what I cannot publish and everything. But I do feel that they they are just handed out willy nilly. And then they enforced weirdly, like in this case, this just seems like this is not the intent here. 
Can you just address publication bans and how they're used in this country? Absolutely. So there are a number of different kinds of publication bans. Um, There are publication bans that are routinely granted to restrict publication on pretrial proceedings, for example. So a preliminary inquiry, a bail hearing, and and those publication bans um, are at least ostensibly justified on the basis of protecting the accused's right to a fair trial. So trying to limit the amount of the evidence that's in the public domain before the trial takes place. Um, Then there are other publication bans that are about protecting privacy. And those are quite exceptional because of the open courts principle and the, um, the public interest in, in you know, seeing the full facts of a case unfold. But it was decided statutorily that sh- there should be this particular specialized type of publication ban, really, again, justified on a policy basis, on the basis that it would encourage people to come forward. So this is a type of publication ban that seeks to ensure that the identity of a complainant doesn't become known because it's it's meant to be a way of encouraging people to come forward without having to be exposed to the kind of public scrutiny that a trial brings. And so I think when you keep that in mind and that that's the purpose of the publication ban, it really does defy logic that this woman would be prosecuted. Now, technically, like the the, the statutory provision doesn't make an exception for the person whose identity is being protected. And maybe it should. And maybe this case is a sign that there's a, you know, a, a, that there should be some legislative reform here. But again, when you when you keep in mind that in this case, it was she shared it very narrowly, I, I believe only possibly even with one other person or a very, very select number of people, as I understand it, at least one of the people with whom it was shared was physically present throughout the trial, but wasn't able to come on the day of the judgment. And so she forwarded it to her, right? And so this person already knew her identity, already knew the identity of the accused, already knew the identities of her children. So when you consider the purpose behind the legislation and that it really is for the protection of survivors of sexual violence, why you would then allow a provision like that to effectively be weaponized against her at the request of her abuser, it it really, I, I, you know, I have such a hard time understanding it. And when I first heard about this case, I told myself there has to be something more to this. (laughs) You know, I had just sort of seen the headlines and I thought, surely there are going to be some additional facts that will become known that will establish why there was a public interest. But the contrary has really proven to be the case for me. Every time I find out more details, I'm more shocked that this happened and, and incredibly, incredibly disappointed. Emily, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is Emily Taman, who is the co-host of the podcast The Docket, talking about an absolutely shocking case that says so much about the Canadian justice system.